0: Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I'm Dr. Mike Todorovich. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Matt Barton. How are you, Matty? Hello. And today we are doing an episode on spinal cord injury. Now, spinal cord injury, we've done an episode on the spinal cord itself, and now we're going to talk about what can happen when the spinal cord itself is damaged. We are joined by a special guest today, and our special guest is a regular... Of it's Dr. more of a Dr. regular Wilson.
2: guest than special. I
0: mean, he, a special regular guest. Yeah, that's right. Um, and there's nothing. Oh, like that. Yeah, there's nothing regular about Dinesh. I mean, he, he's a medical doctor, he's a lawyer, where, uh, he's where, a well sea captain. <laughs> um,
1: I am. I am there. <laughs> so last
0: the last time
2: we had him on, which was months ago, yeah, he had just gotten Order of Australia Medal.
0: Yeah, Order of um, Australia. Um, so now, a lawyer. Yeah, I don't know where you find the time to, to do all this stuff.
1: Uh, oh, I, I do it while I sail.
0: <laughs> while you sail your 50-foot vessel. Yeah,
1: um, being a sea captain's a lonely life.
0: It would be, yeah. Plenty of time for study. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, Dinesh is going to join us. He's... Uh, going to be able to help us here because as a physician he'll be able to tell us exactly what happens at least in the acute phases of spinal cord injury but Dinesh himself has experienced a spinal cord injury and he'll be able to give us personal insight as well and I think that this is invaluable because we'll be able to compare what it says in the textbooks that we learn but also the lived experience of a spinal cord injury and see if it matches up and I think it's going to be a really really good and important conversation to be had. Dinesh, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Ah, thanks guys. Thanks for having me again and thanks for covering this really important topic that's close to my heart.
0: Perfect. I you're always welcome on. Um if, if you know, to be honest, I would replace you with Matt if I could. Mm, but I agree. Matt <laughs> It's stuck in like glue. Unfortunately, we signed a contract with Matt and he's got another. Well, two Dinesh years. is a lawyer now, so he can probably break it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, uh, after this, let's have a look at the contract.
0: And, uh... <laughs> so, to begin with, I think what we should uh, do is probably define a spinal cord injury. And so, Matt and I spoke about the spinal cord in the last episode, and what we said that the spinal cord itself is a highway, it's an interface between the brain and the body, and it's the brain's brain's way to tell the body what to do, and it's the... Uh, body's way of sending signals to the brain about what's happening outside and inside the body itself now when we look at damage to the spinal cord so we said that the spinal cord begins after the brain stem so after the medulla moves its way down to around about l2 and then it turns into something called the cordae equinae which is uh, a splaying of nerves coming from the spinal cord and anytime there's damage to that spinal cord It's going to result in some degree of loss of functional mobility or feeling. And so what we're going to talk about are different types of spinal cord injury, what happens immediately after spinal cord injury, um, but also the long-term effects of spinal cord injury. So Matt, I'm going to throw over to you. When we look at spinal cord injury itself, you can damage any aspect of the spinal cord from the cervical area all the way down to whereabouts. Well,
2: as you said, the spinal cord really ends at lower the lower regions of L1. So, I mean, any, anywhere along that can be potentially damaged. And then depending on the severity of the injury, whether it's a complete injury, so the whole transsectional area is damaged or part, so like a hemisection or possibly a central portion or a peripheral portion would determine kind of what neurons are affected. So these are the things going up and down but also in and out. So that would depend, uh, a lot of variables, and I would imagine, and Dinesh might be able to um, add something here, but every spinal cord injury would would be different. So it's not mm. an exact, always the same. So even if it's at the, a certain level, because it could be partial, complete, um, centrally involved, peripherally involved, it could be quite different. Is that right, Dinesh?
1: Exactly. Um, you've got to remember that these are, often traumatic injuries. They're often um, not clean insults that you get to the cord. So the variety um, of the nature of injuries is vastly variable. The other interesting thing actually is that the majority of injuries are not anatomically complete. Um, So there's often a little bit of cord left more often than not, mm. so therefore you're going to get, um, you know, quite quite a variation in what people feel, um, and what people have left or what people don't.
2: So that's in reference to like the clinical grading. So from a clinical standpoint, mm. they might be scored in a certain way, and we'll talk about this shortly. But they might be informed by the physician that they got this kind of degree of injury, but in fact, if you were to look at it anatomically, it would be different. Is that what you're suggesting? Exactly. yeah. okay. so in terms of the levels, I'll just quickly run through them. So the, the highest level of the spinal cord is the cervical cervical region. and so this would um, you would you would expect that the, the, the more severe end of injuries would be in this area because it's the kind of top of the highway or the top of the elevator. so everything below that's going to be affected. and this is usually going to result in conditions known as either tetraplegia or quadriplegia. Now with the first kind of few um levels so we've got C1 down to C8 um they're the they're the levels of the spinal cord that would allow spinal nerves to go out into the body the first few um particularly 2 3 4 5 um has a an impact on the breathing the breathing muscle so um very high spinal cord injuries probably anything above 3 is going to cause um, a big impact to the breathing muscle, the diaphragm, and then that may result in the person requiring ventilation or assistance with their breathing. Now, as you move down the cervical and you come towards the thoracic, this is the area where the nerves are going out or in and out to your arms. And so, I I would imagine different levels here would impact the arms differently. So, um, an injury kind of like C five. You might have, you know, shoulder um, movements, but then the the lower hand would be affected, and so forth. But I guess as you start to move towards T one, then you'd have a greater sensation and movement in the in the um, upper upper limb. So, Dinesh, question to you: from in terms of your particular injury, where is that located? And were you told mm-hmm. what kind of severity of injury you have?
1: Yeah, so I have a um, C6 slash C7 injury, and that's where the C6 uh, and C7 vertebrae became dislocated uh, because my neck hyperflexed during a car accident. Okay. So the neck sprung forward, and the force was enough to make these two vertebrae dislocate on top of each other and thus damage the spinal cord at that level. My injury is, uh, as you said, it affects parts of my arms. So I have the use of my biceps, I have, I have the use of my shoulders, I have the use of my wrists, although wrist flexion is a little bit weak. And I can use my triceps, but they're, again, weak as well. I have no use of my fingers okay. uh, at all. And... Below the level of the injury, I have some uh, sensation, but it's not perfect anywhere. And um, this is the, the actually uh, an interesting, I guess, side note about uh, brown saccade type injuries. So, mm. brown like saccade. Hemi? Like
2: a hemi section?
1: Exactly. So, mine's not exactly a hemi section, but I have. Um, I have more sensation on one side than the other. Um, so there, there's a bit more sensory function left on one side than the other. And um, that is that, that uh, is useful to highlight Brown-Sicard syndrome as a side note because physiologically it's quite an interesting type of injury where you get a hemisection of the spinal cord, uh, which is not what I have, but some people can get this hemisection. Okay. And that results in paralysis of the side that's hemisected. Um, and then you get sensory deficits on the contralateral side of the body. So the other side of the body. And this kind of anatomically ties in um, where one side of my body has some nerve fibers left on the cord. And then the contralateral side has some, has more sensory function. Mm. Um, so, so that's,
0: and what That's about the distribution of pain and temperature?
1: Mm, I, I See, I don't have enough. Uh, I'm, I'm not able to differentiate sensory function enough to say uh, any of those things. Mm. I, I can just, if I put enough pressure on certain parts of my leg or my belly, I can feel that something's there. Mm. But I, I can never differentiate what it is. Interestingly, though, I, I did put a... Uh, I put a hot towel on my uh, legs recently because I was at work and I was carrying, uh, sorry, it was a hot blanket to mm. a patient and I could feel temperature on my thighs, oh. um, which was, you know, which I just happened to accidentally notice. Yeah. So that's, um, so that's And that, that was just it
0: yeah. And do you think that that's, so the fact that you hadn't necessarily experienced that prior, but experienced that during that particular experience. Um, What do you think that that was indicating? Is it indicating the fact that there's some, you know, uh, high threshold receptors there that given enough time and enough temperature, they'll pick up that thermal input? Um, So what do you think that is?
1: Uh, Maybe. Maybe. And and I guess the blanket was wide enough. It covered a large enough surface area Mm. to do it. Now, having said that, I was also carrying a pizza on my lap recently, and uh, <laughs> I, got a, uh, I got a pretty decent burn on my knee as oh. a result.
0: Oh, no. But, so, so, you didn't feel that was happening?
1: I started getting a bit of autonomic dysreflexia, uh-huh. um, which is when I noticed. So, um, I know we'll cover that later. Yeah. yeah. More just sweating. 20. More just sweating. So okay.
0: I think a, an important point here to highlight is wh- when we look at Brown-Séquard, for example, um, and mm-hmm. you know if if you look at the the textbook uh, definition of brown saccade, which obviously is rarely the case when you have a perfect hemi section, meaning just one side mm. of the spinal cord's damaged, Usually, you're going to have um, some degree of spinal cord that remains, or you know, partial areas of both sides of the spinal cord are going to be affected. But if we just look at the textbook definition of Brown-Saccard, like you were stating, if if one side of the spinal cord is damaged because of the anatomy and physiology of sensory signals, we know that uh, fine touch and proprioception travel up the spine, the same side that it enters. So if there's a hemisection on the, let's just say, the the right side, at, let's say, the, the thoracic area, um, it, that would mean that sensation of the right leg, for example, wouldn't be felt because it's getting impeded by the hemisection on the right-hand side above it. But pain and temperature, they like to jump across to the spinal cord as soon as they enter and then travel up the spine. And therefore, the pain and temperature on the right leg, for example, may be preserved because it's jumping the other side, bypassing that hemisection. When we look at the motor neuron, the motor neuron crosses at the brainstem, so at the medulla. And so you're going to have issues with movement of that leg on the same side as the hemisection below. So that, does that, do, would you agree with that, Dinesh?
1: I, I do okay.
0: concur. Cool. Thank, thank you. Michael. Thank you, learned Doctor. Um, <laughs> so just before we move on to the next topic,
2: just to complete the levels of injury. So then we go into the thoracic region and mm. this, this region's is more concerned about um, the, the muscles of the trunk, sensation of the trunk and abdomen. Now, Dinesh, you mentioned that your injury is around uh, C6, C5, C6. Mm. So um, theoretically, you're not going to have an impact in your diaphragm, your breathing muscle, but... Thoracic, the thoracic level um, will have um, an, a function in breathing um, to mm. to move the the ribs and to for you know greater respiration beyond the passively from the diaphragm. So from yeah. from your standpoint, what kind of um, impact have you had from a breathing standpoint?
1: Yeah, the, the and that's see this is one of the uh, really significant issues. For me, when I first had the accident, I couldn't talk a full sentence like I'm talking now. Uh, it was a few words, take a breath, a few words, take a breath, and um, and is that I was dependent. Sorry, is that because your
2: a lot of your talking is um, dictated by your diaphragm now? Like you're doing, you, you're relying on on your diaphragm to really yeah. uh, to dictate the amount of air that can come out to speak.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think. Just over time and training, uh, you know, and I guess we're always talking every single day, so it's not really a difficult thing to train. Mm -hmm. Which it just naturally happens over time. So over time, I I think the remnant respiratory musculature has adapted, so I could talk like this. Okay. Um, I also use a trunk trunk support. Um, brace every day, and that increases the intrathoracic pressure by increasing the intra abdominal pressure. So, it does okay. a bunch of things for me.
3: Yep. It
1: not only helps me um, breathe better, but it maintains my blood pressure as well yep. and posture. Yep. So, respiratory function was a big thing, and I was dependent on supplementary oxygen for a period of time. And um, intermittently, I still get breathless sometimes. So, um, I still get breathless, and sometimes I can noticeably feel that I'm breathless when I'm at work. Um, so, it takes takes a minute to settle.
0: So, the accessory muscles um, not getting innovated, like the, the um, mm-hmm. intercostals, for yeah. example? Exactly. Gotcha. Um, so, it's all diaphragmatic breathing. So, you rely on the diaphragm for the breath in, and you rely on pressure changes and, and rebound. Like a, a elastic recall sorry for for the breath out
1: yeah, and i uh, I've done a formal respiratory function test previously, and we know that it's um, quite poor cool. and um there may be some uh some thoracic muscles left that help me breathe, but a lot of it is paralyzed right. the um there, and there's a whole host of complications associated with that, actually, apart from your physiological respiratory function being compromised, which may or may not affect your day to day function. So, for example, you know, a high level spinal cord injury uh, will be ventilator dependent
3: yep. because yeah.
1: everything will be like So, apart from that, uh, the, you get sleep apnea as well uh, because your r- respiratory function is so poor uh when you sleep it uh the same thing happens. Particularly because there's there's no muscles supporting uh what you're doing um and you can get just this uh Is it like neurogenics.
2: A neurogenics, okay. Opposed you to a, opposed to an obstructive apnea.
1: Yeah, I think it, it it's probably gonna be a mix of things. Yeah. Um it's gonna be a mix of multifactorial thing that causes it. Yeah. But nonetheless, people with spinal cord injuries are very prone to sleep apnea. So I recently had a sleep study done um maybe three or four months ago and we were finding that I was having apneas up to 75 seconds at night and I was desaturating to, you know, well below 85% for really? wow. periods of time. And I was having about on average, four to six awakenings per night. So no wonder uh, I wasn't too surprised I was feeling so tired uh, all the time. So you've
2: been traded traded for that with a a CPAP or a bite? CPAP,
1: yeah. I I use a a CPAP now, but um, I rip it off during the night. And another strategy is to sleep upright, which kind of takes the pressure off Um, the thoracic cage as well.
0: So when, you, when, when, when you've got that apnea for, what, 70-odd seconds at a time and, you, and your O2 sats drop, what does your body reflexively do to bring that up? Because obviously if somebody has some sort of apneic uh, um, event, accessory muscles will get recruited to try and bring more air in and throw that carbon dioxide out. So mm. do you then start to just do very sharp, shallow breaths uh very quick sharp, shallow breaths how does your body get back to that you know 99 yep. percent saturation
1: well this is why you have awakenings right so you you have frequent um that's that's why those awakenings are recorded mm. and sometimes i will actually wake up um consciously right. um and i will be short of breath and it'll take me a period of time to um get back
0: to sleep right so you're so shift I, from the unconscious to conscious control of breathing just to just to get it back.
1: Yeah. yeah, and you people have these micro awakenings through the night where they um where where they will wake up because of those apneas. Yeah.
2: Just one final question before we move on to the lower levels. Um what about yeah. like just coughing or sneezing? How
1: yeah, that- again, terrible. So okay. uh the expiratory function is affected and therefore the cough is terrible so for me to cough say i get the flu or if i get a cold or if i get whatever i have to assist myself to cough or someone has to assist me to cough and this was particularly uh prominent in the acute stages okay get respiratory physiotherapy often and um a part of their job was to um you know just do chest physiotherapy to Clear the secretions, and yeah. yeah, exactly. So, sometimes when I get a um, you know, the flu, I, I make sure that I get vaccinated every year. But if I get the flu, I will have to press my belly to cough, um, and it can be exhausting because you're using your arms to try and push and push and push every time you cough,
3: yeah,
1: um, or you have to get someone else to do it. So, it, it, it's a serious thing. Now, this is why we are concerned um, at the moment about people with spinal cord injury mortality. and COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Because even in the lar- larger population, we're seeing a mortality rate at the moment of about 2 to 3% is what I've seen over the numbers. Um, but, you know, what, what will happen if someone is unable to cough and you, have, you already have a poor uh, set of respiratory parameters? Yeah. What will happen to them? So... Yeah. Um, that's the, one of the concerns.
0: The difficulties in breathing and the shortness of breath is happening for people who have full control of, you know, accessory muscles and diaphragm and everything like that. So so does that mean that generally speaking, the, um, the, the, the spinal cord injured community are at an increased risk of developing things like pneumonia if they've got a reduced capacity mm. to clear those airways? Does it increase the likelihood for infection to start to develop in the uh, particularly bacterial infection. Like to pneumonias. De- yeah. yeah, like the pneumonias. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because the cough is a part of uh, a defense mechanism too, right? It yeah. helps us expel things. It helps us clear things. So when, when that's impaired and your respiratory function is impaired, yeah, absolutely. People with spinal cord injury are at increased risk of respiratory complications, which is why... Um, caregivers should be a bit more vigilant about getting the proper vaccines in place, yes. making sure that there's uh, proper hygiene measures. And if anyone around them is sick to be a bit more careful. Um, and again, I think the current pandemic has put that on our radars a bit more because mm-hmm. it's a social change towards mm-hmm. um, social distancing and wearing PPE and whatever else.
0: So as a, as a physician, as an emergency physician, how do you then mitigate your risk? Because you're getting people coming in who are sick, but don't probably know what they, I mean, you've got people coming in from motor vehicle accidents and, and, you know, other forms of traumatic accidents, but somebody coming in ill with potentially a transmissible disease, transmittable disease, Mm -hmm. um, how do you minimize your exposure? Is that just through PPE or or what do you do there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, should probably clarify resident in the emergency department as well. Sure. Um, But um, yeah, so this is actually a thing that we have thought about. And currently uh, I don't see any of the respiratory patients because we're just not sure, right? You can't be a hundred percent sure that Mm. um, someone as COVID in Queensland right now it's unlikely but um, I just try to avoid any patients like that. And there are plenty of doctors around that do that um, if you know if there's there are other patients I, I take the usual precautions like hand hygiene um, if a mask is required I wear it um, so it, it's taking those precautions um, it's super important but Yeah, a large majority of patients coming in are not with respiratory symptoms at the moment, but if they are, then I'm careful. I'm even careful with things like people who come in with gastroenteritis, for example.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, You can imagine that would be a a tricky thing to navigate.
0: Yeah, Absolutely.
2: All right, I'll just quickly finish off the last bit of this. Um, so we've got the, the thoracic injuries, which we which kind of started to talk about. Another big area in the thoracic region is the sympathetic nervous system. That goes from T1 to L2. So uh, injuries in the thoracic region can... It's okay, everybody.
0: We're just calling Dinesh back. Oh, dear God. That's okay. You hung up on us,
2: awesome.
1: not <laughs> have...
0: No, I don't think so. It just... That's okay. We might even leave this okay.
1: in.
2: Where <laughs> where did it where did you cut off at?
1: Uh, you were just done until about T1 to.
2: Yeah, so with the th- thoracic injury um, levels at the thoracic region, we've got another uh, important section being the sympathetic nervous system, which goes from T1 to L2. So this is a, an area of your autonomic nervous system that does the kind of fight and flight. So injuries to the thoracic region can impact this autonomic system. Now, we will talk about autonomic dysreflexia a bit later. So, just for time, I'll
0: move on to the lumbar region. You don't want to talk about it now? Um, Why not? And then we'll move through. It might as well. All right. I think we should.
2: So, so if there's an injury, um, particularly above T6, there is a possibility of a um, syndrome, if that's c- the correct term for it, um, which impacts the way that the sympathetic nervous system is regulated. So, Mike, um, you've done a couple of videos on this, so I'll hand it over to you to explain the pathophysiology of this.
0: Sure so and Dinesh please jump in at any point but I think it'll be great to get your um, both your medical experience and your personal experiments uh, experience regarding autonomic dysreflexia so uh, basically with autonomic dysreflexia When we look at the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight system, we know that it exits the spinal cord at the thoracic or the lumbar region. And it innervates or speaks to a number of different organ structures and it will tell them to do certain functions in a scenario of fight or flight. So anytime your body thinks it's at risk of danger, it will stimulate this system. So types of things that can happen with the sympathetic nervous system is your pupils dilate, your peripheral blood vessels will constrict, this increases your blood pressure, your heart rate goes up, Uh, a whole number of effects happen to try and keep you alive in that moment because it's to promote fighting or run away to fight another day. Now, if somebody has a spinal cord injury at T6 or above, what can happen is that this level of injury is right where the sympathetic nervous system is sitting. And Something can stimulate, some sensory stimuli, such as an obstruction in the bladder or bowel, for example, can stimulate sensory neurons. And this is going to go into the spinal cord and try and travel to the brain because it wants to tell the brain, hey, there's something... Noxious, usually noxious, right? That's right. There's something noxious. There's something that needs to be done about this. But as it travels up, it gets impeded by the spinal cord injury. So this is not usually, this isn't something that's necessarily happening immediately after injury, but something that can happen long-term after injury. Now, as it travels up, it gets blocked at the level of injury. But when it does this, it ends up stimulating sympathetic neurons that are in the spinal cord. And you have this sympathetic outflow coming from the spine and you get sympathetic effects. Now, so all these sympathetic effects are below the injury. These sympathetic effects are happening below the level of injury at the moment. And one of the things that happens is the blood vessels constrict. So you've got the peripheral blood vessels, they constrict, and what it does is it increases your blood pressure now the blood pressure didn't want to increase there was no reason for it to increase so the brain recognizes that there's an increase in blood pressure because your carotid arteries have baroreceptors and so it goes to the brain and says hey blood pressure's up for some reason we need to drop it so it goes okay okay I'll send an inhibitory signal going down. And what it does is it sends this inhibitory signal and a vagal nerve signal, which is the flip side of the autonomic system, which is the parasympathetic nervous system. And the vagus nerve goes to the heart and it says, hey, slow down. So if you slow the heart down, you're going to drop the blood pressure. And so that's what it does. And so two important signs here is an increase in blood pressure, but a drop in the heart rate which is recognized as bradycardia. Now, the thing is this, the sympathetic nervous system that's being pumped out is trying to get dampened by a descending inhibitory signal, but it's getting stopped at the level of the spinal cord injury. So what you end up getting is below the level of the injury a sympathetic effect and above the level of injury a parasympathetic effect and so some parasympathetic effects you can get above the level of injury apart from slowing down of the heart is the blood vessels of the face can dilate and so you have this flushing effect of the face but now you've got blood vessels dilating above and blood vessels constricting below and this can result in a headache. And so a headache can be a common symptom as well. Also, nasal congestion due due to the dilation of these blood vessels in the head as well. And so these are some of the more common signs. Now, the sympathetic nervous system usually controls sweating, but the parasympathetic nervous system can control sweating if the sympathetic nervous system is out of action. And so above the level of injury, you can get the parasympathetic nervous system stimulating a sweating response. So the take-home message from what I understand with autonomic dysreflexia is you get a bump up in blood pressure, you get a drop in heart rate. Now, you don't always, but this is probably most common, a drop in heart rate, flushing, headache, and sweating is some of the common symptoms indicating that autonomic dysreflexia is, is occurring. And it's usually stimulated, like Matt said, by some sort of noxious event. Usually, it's a uh, some sort of issue with the bladder or some obstruction in the bowel. Now, uh, Dinesh, I want your I want your experience as a medico and as somebody with a spinal cord injury to tell me what have I said that's correct, incorrect, <laughs> relevant, irrelevant. I yeah. want your perspective. No,
1: that's a that is a very good. Uh, that that's really good. I guess the thing to remember is that autonomic dysreflexia is a life threatening complication. Yeah, um, and it is critical that. You manage it promptly. Uh, People can get strokes. And when I I was in the hospital after the spinal cord injury, uh, one of the other patients did have a stroke in his sleep from autonomic dysreflexia and sadly passed away.
0: Do we know why the stroke? Is it hemorrhagic?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because your your blood pressure can go up to... We're talking... uh, Usually, you can go to 200, 300. Whoa. These sort of numbers have been recorded.
0: And that's just simply because it's uncontrolled.
1: It's uncontrolled because normally your brain would have some descending inhibition that dampens these signals. Mm. So it's uncontrolled and it it is critical. This is a life-threatening thing that you call the ambulance about if it's happening and you can't correct it. Most people with spinal cord injuries know their symptoms, know what causes it and uh, them and their caregivers can manage this pretty quick to figure out what's going on. And like you said, a common thing is the bladder um, or uh, it can be skin or it can be, um, you know, it's usually a quick thing. So
0: you said the pizza burn was the stimulus for for yours recently,
1: right? The pizza burn, exactly. The other thing is um, autonomic dysreflexia again is a continuum, so you can get very, very mild symptoms from a tiny noxious stimulus.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, some Paralympic athletes use it to enhance their performance oh. because you cause yourself a tiny bit of pain, and sympathetic drive. You suddenly have a <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. And um, you might see. I, I often. It's performance
0: enhancing for them. It's performance
1: enhancing. Wow! Um, but do,
0: will they need to control it after the event? Like, <laughs> because I well, assume that doing the exercise isn't sufficient to then mitigate it.
1: Well, you see, if I if I um, I don't pinch it, but I sometimes just push my knuckle into my thigh yep. for a second, and my blood pressure goes up. So I, I wow. sometimes do that all the time. So this high. It, this... Yeah, hypotension happens, right? Ah. I often feel a little bit off because the blood pressure is low. or uh, And then I just bring it up so... uh, by wiggling my leg a bit or just causing a tiny bit of pain. And it only lasts a second. It comes back. It's very rapid. So, so
0: what makes it, sorry to interrupt, but so obviously you, you said it can be life threatening and it can mm. be uncontrolled. So is there like this, is, a, is there a threshold point, for example, where it becomes uncontrolled? So you said, you know, you can you can push your knuckles into your leg, cause a bit of pain and you cause a transient increase in blood pressure, yeah. but you said but it then gets that mitigated. Pain gone okay but the pain's gone and therefore the pain was the stimulus for the sympathetic nervous system so so what you're saying is that if there's an ongoing noxious event that's what can lead to autonomic dysreflexia getting at it so so this could be as simple as what an inflammatory response due to an infection for example
1: it could be anything like we said the most common causes are you know bladder skin that sort of stuff but there are times where you can't find what the noxious stimulus is Uh and those can be things like fractures which people are very prone to because in spinal cord injury or often osteoporotic or osteopenic Mm -hmm. Uh, there can be something intra-abdominal happening like appendicitis or um, cholecystitis or something like that um, it can be even things like a pulmonary embolism or a pneumonia oh, if you wow. can't feel that. So it, it, if you can't find an obvious cause, um, you go fishing for those things because you've got to remember that a person with spinal cord injury may not be able to tell that they've got abdominal pain. They yeah. may not be able to tell that they've got a fracture. Yeah. They may not be able to tell all these things. So um, it, 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 you got to go fishing if you can't. So the first things that you do is r- remove any tight-fitting clothing. Have a look at the skin. Have a make sure that you know if there's, there's a catheter in place. Make sure that it's not kinked. Whatever else you look for, all the obvious causes. Mm. If you can't find the obvious causes, you need to start fishing for one of those more occult causes. I had this period recently, oh, probably about uh, probably about ten months ago now. And this is an interesting bit of physiology as well. We were talking about how you sweat yeah. and you get all these um, autonomic symptoms above the level of the injury. Yep. What happens to me, and I, don't, I haven't really grasped the physiology of why, is that if I have an insult on one side, I start to sweat on the contralateral side. Oh. Um, like if it's a mild to moderate insult, and it's actually really useful to me because sometimes I'll be sweating perfectly on one half of my face, face to the left. And I know that there'll be an insult on the right. Um and do you so think that's because having- of
0: do you think that's because you're you're stimulating, you know, uh, it's a noxious stimuli. And so the pain pathway that's being that's ascending up the spine is ascending on the opposing side, on the contralateral side, and that's leading to some afferents that's that's hitting some eff, oh, some some sympathetic or parasympathetic efference as it's travelling up the spine on that opposing side, maybe,
1: maybe it's,
0: that's so it's interesting. Hard.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's hard to tell because you do have a spinal cord injury, right? Maybe yeah. there are some, um, maybe there are some fibers remaining that can cause that. Mm. Because if you have a if you have an injury that's fairly you know, anatomically complete there, and there's no ascending signal, um, it's probably hard for the body to lateralize it, right? So Absolutely. Well, isn't
2: there um, a condition, I think it's called Horner syndrome, where um, in the face, I think it's due to a, the ganglia, one of the sympathetic ganglia in the cervical region yeah. that causes um, one side of your face to become sweaty or yeah. or yeah. lack of one of the two, I forget, but I wonder, if, of, that, yeah. I wonder if that is um, got a, kind of a role in it as well, sympathetic, the but, way that the sympathetic is impacted. Mm,
1: well, this was um, – so when this was happening to me, like I'd be soaked, right, on oh. – I think I can't remember which side, but one side of my body, so the shirt was soaked. It was wet wow. and my face was wet and but the other side was perfectly dry. And this kept happening for weeks without us finding an obvious reason mm. for it. So we looked at the skin, we looked at everything – Nothing. And then in the end, um, I was at work and I was talking to one of my bosses and they're like, okay, we need to do something about this because, you know, you look ill and (laughs) you are soaked on one side. So we did a CT scan and we found on the contralateral side, there was a little lesion um, that we had to drain. Wow. And as soon as we drained it, I felt perfect,
0: wow so That's, and so so you you could you only found it by doing a full body c t
1: yeah, because we had no idea yeah. where it was, and we we'd looked at all the obvious stuff, we'd done all the basic um, investigations still happening, so you know it's not ideal because you know c t scans are, have sure. a bit of radiation, but with this ongoing, you had to figure out what it was
0: and so it, would you say that that event is autonomic dysreflexia? Was your blood pressure up, for example?
1: Yeah, it, it uh, was minimally
0: up. Yep. Um,
1: but the interesting thing was it was, you know, uh, symptoms on just one side of the body. Yeah. Otherwise. The, I have had very severe autonomic dysreflexia from a bladder complication. Yep. I was overseas at the time, and a lot of, um, there is a lack of awareness in a lot, lot of places about how to manage ordinary dysreflexia, and I ended up in this um, emergency department in a rural, not rural, but a um, developing nation, oh. and my blood pressure was about 240 systolic, oh. and my heart my heart rate was about 30. Jeez! Minute, wow. And I, I, felt. Were you sick. conscious? Soaked in blood. I was conscious, but I, because I guess you still got perfusion, right?
3: Yeah.
1: But I, I was so so sick, and um, we really had to fight to get them to understand what was happening. Wow. Um, so it it, it is a thing, and a lot of people try to carry a card around on yeah. how to manage autonomic dysreflexia and what it might be.
2: So in that case, um. Let's put your physician hat on for this point. If you have um, blood pressure at that, that amount and you can't really identify what's the root cause, what um, what's your go to kind of management slash medication? Yeah.
1: The um, most people have something at home, whether it, uh, and the two most commonly prescribed thing is GTN or nifedipine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's prescribed to people to keep at home, with instructions that if they are feeling symptoms of autonomic dysreflexia, generally take this and call the ambulance. Um,
2: <laughs> so these two, these two just dilate like the blood vessels, right?
1: Yeah, I think I, I guess the one thing that some need to be aware of is that if they're taking things like sildenafil, which is Viagra, and they should not be using GTN during that time because that, that can be quite a severe hypotensive event.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so they've got to be careful with that. But those two are the two things that are generally used. Um, and then call the ambulance. Um, if you can't, you know, fix the cause, most of the time people will know that it's the bladder or whatever else. But if you can't fix it, take it, take, take the medication, call the ambulance.
0: And so would you say that when. Sorry, go on.
1: Yeah. When people turn up in the ED, you can go through a lot of the basic stuff like, again, checking how the bladder's is doing, do a bladder scan, is there a big volume in there, um, have they been having any other symptoms that, you, that could help you figure out what's going on. Um, has there been any recent trauma, falls out of the wheelchair, um, have they had any fevers or whatever. And then you essentially got to fish around for a trip. While you're doing that, you do need to keep the blood pressure in check. So, you need to bring the blood pressure down. And... um,
0: If you bring the blood pressure down, will that fix the heart rate?
1: Yeah, it should usually respond. Yeah. The thing you got to remember is um, you bring the blood pressure down, but you need to... um, you really need to keep in mind that the moment, as in within seconds of you removing the stimulus, uh, yeah. that blood pressure is going to normalize. Wow.
0: Yeah. So then you can so have a hypotensive you, event.
1: Exactly. Oh. And I've, I've, I've seen this and experienced it myself. Wow. So um, you need to make sure that whatever you're using, you're very careful and you're able to withdraw it quickly. Another strategy um, that I've had on myself is to have a second line in the other arm with a bag of fluids ready to go.
0: Oh, Just Um, to bring your volume up.
1: Yeah, to bring the volume up, which is not going to fix it super quick, but um, it can help.
3: Yeah, wow.
1: Um, Another thing I've seen somewhere is this has happened. And then they've gone to vasopressors to bring, bring it up and they've just had this up and down fluctuate blood pressure that couldn't get under control oh. um, with the patient ending up in the ICU for a period of time. So
0: wow. it,
1: it, it's something that you need to be careful with and be mindful of. So um,
0: difficult, uh, sounds difficult to manage then because obviously getting the right, because you'd want to, like you said, heart, uh, blood pressure goes up, goes through the roof. You want to treat that so you give something like you said nifedipine or gtn blood vessels dilate relax blood pressure goes down oh I've identified what the issue is it's the catheter you fix the catheter up oh blood pressure goes all the way down you then have to give them vasopressors or something else that then brings it back up maybe a little bit too high and you're playing this balancing game back and forth with pharmacological agents and and uh, interventions maybe fluids maybe drugs and you just what do this until there's a, a balancing point or how, how well, do you, how, how do you ideally
1: that? you don't get to that point because if you're mindful and judicious with what you're doing um then you can be careful enough where it doesn't get to that point yeah i, get, I think you just have to remember that if as soon as you remove that um, stimulus, the blood pressure is going to normalize nearly immediately.
3: Yeah.
1: So, um, you know, like, like I said, for example, by causing myself a little bit of a noxious stimulus, I can, I can manipulate my blood pressure. Yeah. So, um, this is this yeah. Is,
2: this is what got you through med school. I'm oh, sorry, l- law school.
1: <laughs> this is yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so as a as a um, um,
2: as a just a. Side question, again, with your physician hat on. Um, what about mm. a, a female with a spinal cord injury at that level and she is pregnant? So if, if, if she was yeah. to give birth, that would be a, a visceral, noxious mm. experience. Would, would she have to kind of pre-medicate for the likelihood of autonomic dysreflexia? Yeah,
1: you can, you can even do things like, um, like epidural anesthesia uh, like a regional epidural anesthesia or whatever and that that seems to control St- these things
2: stops the sensory going up
1: mm. yeah okay so you can do things like that as well and that can help so if if you um can't under- identify this um or if you do know like where the nociceptive cause is you could use um i guess one example might be a childbirth or appendicitis until you take the appendix out yeah. or whatever you could pretend you could use um like epidural anesthesia or something to do it yeah but you you just got to be careful that um you're aware that the blood pressure is going to drop yeah when you yeah
2: all right well moving on to the lumbar region so now this is the the lower back so this is there's five five nerves here so that the the greatest impact and an injury at this level would be um the lower limbs so again um, depending on the level of the lumbar, would dictate the um, the muscles and the, the part of the, the lower limb that's affected. Now, in terms of the sacral region, this is all about, um, well, significantly about pelvic viscera, so bowel, bladder, sexual function. So an impact here will have uh, an effect on um, the bladder. And we spoke about that. So the, an effect being neurogenic bladder. And that kind of goes through stages from... Um, you know, and this would probably run parallel to uh, spinal shock where you may lose all neurological function to the bladder which I presume you would just have urinary retention. Is that right? Uh,
1: yes, I think so. I'd have to double check that. And,
2: and that itself by having retention causing the bladder to kind of expand would be um, a form of noxious stimulus so that in itself yeah, could absolutely. actually then be a reason for the autonomic dysreflexia.
1: Yep. Yeah, like like, like I said, a blocked catheter or, a, um, yeah, or a bloody insight can certainly, um, like a calculus, can be other things. Oh yeah. Um, so th- those things can certainly cause autonomic dysreflexia. All
2: right. So that's the that's the levels of the spinal cord, and that's the different things that can happen along the way. In terms of um, the injury itself, Mike's just going to quickly talk about um, what actually happens immediately at the the site and then a secondary effect.
0: Yeah, so I want to talk about, um, because for the listeners who may or may not be aware, Matt and I and also Dinesh actually do research into spinal cord injury. Um, and there's an, a number of different research projects that are being undertaken all around the world to try to um, manage the damage that's occurred at the spinal cord injury, circumvent further damage and mitigate any sensory or motor function loss, for example. But there's also other types of research that's be that's occurring, utilising um, machinery, robotics, all those types of things. So in order to understand how these research interventions proposed to work, what we need to do is talk about what happens at the spinal cord immediately after injury. And so I think what you've got is the primary and secondary phases of injury and the primary injury itself is basically the direct damage that occurs and most commonly it's some sort of uh, damage that's happened to the bony material, fragments, shards come off and that can lead to ongoing um, pressure on the spinal cord and direct physical damage to the spinal cord itself now this is that primary injury the secondary injury now the primary injury is immediate the secondary injury will happen seconds minutes months weeks you know years after and it has a barrage of cascading events that occur so after the spinal cord is directly damaged through let's just say bony fragments for example you can have damage to the blood vessels that are there. Now, the real large blood vessels of the spinal cord, like the anterior and posterior arteries, they're rarely damaged, but the smaller blood vessels that branch off to feed the spinal cord, they can get damaged and they can be torn, and that can lead to bleeding at the spinal cord and pressure on the spinal cord, which leads to further damage at the spinal cord. But what it also means is that there is a loss of oxygen and nutrients to the cells in the spinal cord. And the cells that we're talking about are neurons, which send the signals, and glia, which support the neurons, help them send the signals. So this loss of oxygen and nutrients means that there's no energy being produced by these cells. And this is important because a lack of energy results in a whole cascading uh, range of events. So for example, for a neuron to work... It needs to take sodium that sits outside the cell and throw it inside the cell. Now a neuron can send a signal. Once that's happened, we need to throw the sodium back out of the cell. And to do that, we need energy. Now, there's no energy in this scenario, so the sodium remains inside the cell. We need to find another way of getting that sodium out. Luckily, we've got a bunch of calcium that sits outside the cell and we just swap it. So we throw the calcium in and we throw the sodium out. In doing so, we accumulate a whole bunch of calcium inside of our cells, our neurons of the spinal cord, and we get this huge calcium influx. Now, the problem here is that calcium influx stimulates cells to die. And so these cells then die and burst and they release their... Components. And what they release are neurotransmitters, among many other things like inflammatory chemicals. But let's talk about the neurotransmitters like glutamate first. So, glutamate spills into the tissue surrounding the neurons at the spinal cord. And glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. So, all the neurons that are working well at the spinal cord at this point get stimulated by glutamate. Now, what happens here is glutamate stimulates healthy neurons by throwing calcium into those neurons and sodium, just any ion with a positive charge to it. Now, because there's so much glutamate, we throw in too too much calcium and it results in more cell death and this is called excitotoxicity, something that we don't want to occur. Now, Current research is looking at ways to avoid these types of things by blocking glutamate channels called NMDA inhibitors or antagonists, by stopping the sodium and calcium going back and forth. There's research doing that, for example. And what's happening is that the inflammatory chemicals that are being released stimulates an inflammatory response. Now, inflammation is good in the short term because it leads to rebuilding and repair, but it's not good in the long term because if it stays too long, it can result in further damage. Anytime you have damage to tissues with a blood supply, inflammation occurs and rebuilding is stimulated. Now, it's great to rebuild because a spinal cord injury is going to damage the blood spinal cord barrier. And we need a good blood spinal cord barrier because it stops any uh, infectious agents or any toxins or drugs that shouldn't cross from the blood into the spinal cord and protects it. Spinal cord injury damages this. We need to fix it. So inflammation promotes repair and we repair it. But inflammation is nonspecific. So it's like tearing a house down and rebuilding the house. The problem is you're now rebuilding a house on a highway the spinal cord. And so you just build a wall up and this is a scar that forms. And this scar is known as a glial scar because it's the glia that actually promote this inflammatory process. So what we end up having over weeks and months and years is this inflammatory response that leads to a scar being formed. And this scar leads to inhibition of any neurons and glia from being able to communicate with one another. So in spinal cord injury, we want to try and we need to We need to allow for repair to occur, but we need to stop this scar from building. So this is the type of stuff that we're doing. I know that took a little bit, so I do apologize, both Matt and Dinesh, but I think it's important to build that picture because then it allows us to talk about research, for example. Now, this is just some tissue changes that occur, but what I want to move on and talk about, unless Matt and Dinesh had something to add, is I want to talk about Uh, motor movement, because I've spoken a bit about sensory and brown saccade, for example, Um, and I want to talk a bit about motor movement and reflexes, if we can. Um, When we look at motor movement, you've got two neurons coming from the brain going to the muscle that needs to move. So if it's conscious movement, it's going from the motor cortex, it sends a signal down a motor neuron that crosses over at the brainstem, at the medulla, goes to the other side, continues down the opposing side, of the spinal cord. This is still one neuron. This is called the upper motor neuron. And then at the level in which it wants to exit, let's say for the leg, so it's going to be the lumbar sacral region, it's going to synapse with the second motor neuron called a, low, called a lower motor neuron, and that goes out to tell the leg to move by telling the muscles to contract. So upper motor neuron, lower motor neuron. In a spinal cord injury, you can damage either an upper or a lower motor neuron, and what we get are varying effects because the lower motor neurons involved in reflexes. And so I've said before in a podcast that the lower motor neuron seems to always be stimulated. And the upper motor neuron plays an important role in modulating it, tr- sort of inhibiting it a little bit. And so when you have a reflex, let's just say a patella tendon reflex, where you hit the you stretch the tendon of the patella with a little hammer, it sends a sensory signal into the spinal cord. That then talks to a lower motor neuron, which sends a signal out to tell the leg to contract. If you've got an upper motor neuron injury, it's not mitigating or inhibiting that lower motor neuron. So you get an excessive motor response, an excessive reflex that happens. But if you have damage to the lower motor neuron, you're going to have an absent reflex, for example. And I think this is something that we should probably talk about. And maybe you can help us here, Dinesh. When it comes to reflexes and either you can talk about what you've seen medically or what you've experienced personally Um, how do you see the reflexes happening depending on the level of the spinal cord injury
1: yeah so your reflexes um are going to be um hyperreflexic if you have a spinal cord lesion generally or like always so if because normally you get signals coming down from the brain like you said, it inhibits the reflex. Um, but in spinal cord injury, uh, that is absent. So you're going to get a hyperreflexic state. Um, and uh, whatever reflex you test below the level of the injury is going to be a reflexive one.
3: Yeah. You
1: also get these other reflexes like the Babinski reflex oh, yeah. where you uh, look at the movement of the toe, whether it's up or down. Um, in, so with this one, what you do is you stimulate the bottom of the foot in a certain way. And if you have a upper motor neuron, um, lesion, your toe will go up. And if it's normal, the toe will go down the large toe. Yeah. So so you get reflexes like that, that you can look at as well. Um, and these, these are the mechanisms around spasticity as well. Um, So spasticity is a huge thing for me. Um, Not normally in my day to day life, but when I'm when I'm laying in bed, um, I I guess the stretch of the certain tendons um, cause spasticity, particularly at my hips uh, and lower limbs. Um, And these would be the same mechanisms because there's no descending control of it.
0: Yeah. Mm. Interesting. So, and
2: and the same thing would happen with I mean particularly with the bladder. Because the bladder is a muscle, just like you said, and it's got a reflex associated with it. And if you knock off the higher descending inhibit- inhibitor, the the bladder can be also hyperreflexive, which means it's over tense. And then that can cause um, incontinence. So because it, the, the, the bladder is a muscle, so it's contracting more than it potentially should. And it's instead of squeezing a bone like a skeletal muscle, it's squeezing... The urine, and that can cause leakage, and particularly over time, the bladder can be kind of so um, hypertrophied, which means its muscles become too kind of big, that the bladder becomes kind of too muscly for its own good, if that makes sense. Which then causes a problem that if the bl- if the urine in the bladder is too highly pressurized, it can push urine back up to the kidney which can cause um, forms of renal failure and I think this was um, one of the common reasons why people with spinal cord injury um, historically died is because of uh, probably kidney mm. failure or kidney infections and so probably yeah. that those kind of reflex to the viscera is going to cause um, complications as well so
1: yeah and just... you can't you can't show a muscle batter off to the cheeks so. <laughs> yeah
0: so would you say that f- for yourself, for example, that because of the level of spinal cord injury, that if you were to p- perform a, a tendon reflex of your arms, for example, that is, is there an absent reflex there? But if you did it for your legs, it's hyperreflexive?
1: Yeah. There, there, there may be an area where it's absent. We've never really had that detailed look. Yeah. But generally anywhere below the injury, is hyperreflexive. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and at at the level of injury because you've likely damaged the lower motor neuron. um, Mm. Is the absent reflex? Okay. Um, And this actually...
1: Yeah, sorry. Uh, That that probably has some implications for recovery down the track as well. When we come up with these therapies and treatments, um, one of the questions that's floating around is what happens to the motor function at the level of the injury? Mm. Have you damaged the lower motor neurons irreparably, what's their stain? I think those are some of the questions that are still unclear.
0: Well, they're they're very important because obviously the lower motor neuron, if intact, will release uh, growth signals. And these growth signals include neurotransmitters but also other chemicals to the muscle tissue itself. And so if the lower motor neuron is intact, you're going to get less diminishment in the size of the muscle itself if the lower motor neuron is not intact and and is and is damaged then those growth factors aren't getting released and you're going to get uh, muscle size loss that are mo- is more significant um, if the lower motor neuron is lost compared to those that have lower motor neurons intact and so mm-hmm. you know you can obviously it it just shows that you know if you have a hyperreflexive response the lower motor neuron is intact and therefore the muscle mm. can be stimulated the the issue is it's a circuitry issue like in electronics it's just one part of the circuit is is damaged and so that's why i think a lot of the um the the, the robotics based interventions are really interesting because it, it is a circuitry in a sense you just got to bypass the broken highways um And and so I I think that's, and in all honesty, the the, the broken area is is a minimal area, but because it's right in the middle of a highway, it leads to significant issues below that level of injury. But there's actually nothing wrong with any of the systems below the level of injury. It's just the diminished signals that are going up and down. So, um, yep. you know, it, it is my hope and my aim in, in the future for spinal cord injury research to, you know, w- once the spinal cord injury occurs to try and find a way to bypass that so that the issues that occur, you know, months to years down the track don't happen um, and you can maintain muscle size and muscle mass and muscle usage, and sense and be able to maintain sensation and not have sensory loss and so forth. I mean, you're doing a num- you're doing research at the moment in a number of different groups and areas. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your robotics research and the stuff that you're doing there?
1: Yeah, our, our research is, um, like I said, I think uh, um, there is a lot of exciting. Bits of research happening, um, some major projects actually with stem cells and um, other areas. So, uh, my primary project at the moment is using EEG-driven rehabilitation mm. with drug therapy and sensory feedback as well. And that's really a combination of some studies that have uh, animal studies that have come out of Switzerland and some human studies that have come out of the US, which have shown recovery in spinal cord injury using these therapies. I think, I guess without going into too much detail, some of the key bit, key points that are important is that um, drug therapy with particular types of drugs uh, potentially uh, increase the excitability of the cord and its amenability for neuroplasticity. Mm. And, having a top-down and bottom-up stimulation
3: yeah.
1: helps. Um, the important thing to remember is going back, we said that the spinal cord injuries are rarely anatomically complete. Even if they're clinically complete, where there's no sensory motor function below, yeah. it's still likely that there's some fibers left. And I think that's probably an important thing.
0: I think it's very In the important.
1: Animals, yeah. In the animal studies, they show that they showed that there were new um, interneurons growing in those injury sites with these um, therapies. So there is probably something happening. We we need to do a lot more work to understand it better.
3: Mm.
1: But um, it's it's an ongoing area that's really interesting. Presumably, you know, humans learn to walk, learn to do things, learn to do that, and we previously thought that spinal cord injury or the spinal cord and the brain is not amenable I to repair and change, but perhaps under the right stimuli, that may not be the case. Yeah, yeah uh,
0: I think this is a, a good segue to talk briefly about um, the re- regenerative capacity of the central nervous system versus the peripheral nervous system. So for people who are listening, the central nervous system is obviously the brain and brain stem, and the peripheral nervous system are all the other nerves that shoot out and away. Uh, there, there is a difference in regeneration because you can cut your finger and even cut the nerve of your finger, lose sensation of a particular dermatome, yet you can regain that sensation over time as that peripheral nerve regenerates. Um, we know that the spinal cord probably has lesser degree of regeneration, but not absence or, or, or lack of regeneration. Matt, do you want to talk a little bit more about the regenerative capacity between the CNS the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system.
2: Well, the, the main the main big difference between the central nervous system, this in this case being the spinal cord, and a peripheral nerve. Let's just say like a median nerve. This is this is commonly impacted in a condition. Let's say like carpal tunnel, where you might have the nerve crushed, um, with the tendons going down into your fingers. Um, so the big, the big difference is the peripheral nerves have a different myelinating cell. This is a cell that puts the insulation around the axons which speed up the transmission of the electrical activity. So in the peripheral nerves, we have a glial cell or a myelinating cell called a Schwann cell, whereas in the spinal cord, it's an oligodendrocyte. And so the main difference is when it's injured, what the spinal cord does, these oligodendrocytes really don't do much at all probably probably a lot of them around the injury site will just die off. But as Mike said, it's almost like a car accident on that freeway. And with a car accident, you have a lot of um, debris, you know, bits of the car everywhere. Same thing with a spinal cord injury. There's a lot of debris everywhere, but there's nothing to clean it up. So that kind of hampens the repair mechanism. Where in the peripheral nervous system, if you were to have a a damage um, to a, a peripheral nerve, let's just say it was cut, not crushed, um, the what the swan cells do. These are the myelin cells. They actually detach off the damaged axon, and they actually turn onto a different type of cell. They they go from a myelin cell into now a eating cell. So they'll actually start to eat up all that debris. And another thing that they can do, which is quite remarkable, is they can um, whistle to the blood blood immune cells to bring in a macrophage, which is a type of Um, cell that does a lot of eating it's like a pac-man so it will whistle they will come out of the blood come to the injury site and clean up all that debris so this is the peripheral nervous this is the peripheral nerve and so this is highly effective so as soon as you have all that cleaned up what the axons that have been damaged can do is re-sprout and then find where they need to go distally or downstream to then go to the area where they should go um, and as soon as they do that, what the Schwann cells do, and this is the, the myelinated cell, they turn back into their old form and become myelinated again. So they're remarkable in that sense. So
0: this doesn't happen in the central nervous it system? It doesn't happen
2: in, in the central nervous system. But what, what we're doing in our lab, uh, and Dinesh is part of this, is we are getting these cells from different parts of the body. So there is uh, a group of cells in the nose called uh, olfactory and sheathal cells, which are a bit different to Schwann cells, but they come down, they're, they're kind of like cousins. They're very similar in uh, related. They do a bit different. They kind of do peripheral nerves in the nose, whereas the swan cells do all the other peripheral nerves. But we get in these cells and we're going to put them into spinal cord injuries and hopefully they can do the cleanup better than the oligodendrocytes and then hopefully we can get um, some better outcomes in that sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: One one final thing I just wanted to ask you, Tanesh. So you spoke about um, clinical grading and then uh, anatomical difference and how mm. um, what's stated from the clinician is this is the type of damage you got. This is kind of the recovery you're going to have for the rest of your life. But anatomically, this could be different. So mm. um, how do you, what, what is this, the grading mechanism? So how does a phys- physician yeah. grade a spinal cord injury? Can you just quickly run through that?
1: Yeah. The most commonly used scale is the Asia Impairment Scale. That is the American Spinal Injury Association Scale. That has a rating from Asia A to B. Okay. Essentially, this looks at... um, Sorry, Asia A to E, that is. Um, And essentially, that looks looks at sensory and motor function. Asia A is a complete injury clinically, right? There's no motor or sensory function below the level of the injury. Okay. Asia B has some sensory function but no motor function and that's at the um sacral segments of s4 and s5 so your booty um <laughs> should have some sensation okay and i'm i'm asia b i started to feel my butt a few weeks after the injury um which is a momentous occasion <laughs> <Absolutely. So.
0: laughs> you can't let anybody else feel your butt
1: well, <laughs> well, it depends, on depends on the person.
0: Depends on the person.
1: To to actually get the Asia scale done, someone has to feel your butt.
0: Oh, that's a good point. So, that's a good point.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Are you going to ask me to easy. do
0: the next Asia evaluation? <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> I know we've been doing it uh, for fun, but let's,
0: let's do it for the scale. We've been getting the practice in.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right sorry, sorry for interrupting. Keep going.
1: No. But, so then, um, Asia C is you. You have some motor function, but it's not great, and um, it's uh, it should be um, more than half of the key muscles below the injury level um, should have um, some motor function. Um, and then Asia D is where you have better motor function and your joints can move against gravity. Oh yeah. And then Asia E is just normal. So that's what you guys are.
2: Okay. So, uh, Dinesh, when you were first graded after your injury, I mean, first of all, how long after your injury did they give you a grade in? Is it like within days or is it?
1: Honestly, um... I can't remember. Okay. Um, but I was given an initial grading, and I was given the grading near discharge, and they were different. So initially, I was Asia A, yeah. and then later I was Asia B. And so do you know what you would be? Functions. What would you be now? And still be? Well, we did one recently actually, and it was still B.
0: Okay. Okay. And so when we look at so that's the that's the grading now that I yeah. think you alluded to it before or spoke about it uh, before that it's probably rare to have an individual with a fully transected or fully separated spinal cord is that correct like anatomically they they may yeah. be classified as a full transection but anatomically things are Remaining and, and and this is the substrate that would probably say for regeneration, this is sort of like the, the seeds that are remaining that may allow for potential regeneration to occur or even maintain some degree of sensory or motor function. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. But there's not a huge amount of literature on this, but mm. um, the understanding at the moment in the literature that is there is that most injuries have some anatomic uh, remains even though they may not be clinically evident.
0: Yes, yes, that's right. And I think this is something that you, you know, the, the more people with spinal cord injury that I speak to, um, the more anecdote I get, um, you know, and the plural of anecdote isn't data, but it is uh, really important. I always talk to people who have experienced a spinal cord injury and they've said to me so often, oh, yeah, I was told that it's complete, I'm not going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And then, you know, you talk to them and they said, but after two years, I was able to do this. Or after three months, I was able to do this. And so mm. there there is something left. There is. It's either there are highways that are left um, or there's a regenerative capacity present in some degree or regard that can be... Uh, enforced or emphasized or or supported or even just maintained through maybe physical activity or, or physical therapy or whatever it may be and i mm. think i think that's a that's an important point and you were alluding to plasticity earlier and that you know there's been this this dogma within science or medicine that you know the brain and the spinal cord they can't change whatever is there is there and it will not change and whatever you lose you've lost forever but we know at least we know for the brain for example that it is plastic meaning it can change and we see it all the time we see individuals who have had limbs amputated for example for whatever reason we know that the part of their brain let's just say somebody's had their right arm amputated the part of their brain dedicated to sensation of that right arm is still intact so what ends up happening is that part of the brain becomes quite starved for sensory information. That arm's no longer there, so they're not receiving any information. So that part of the brain starts to talk to surrounding areas, and the areas that are close to the arm are actually parts that are mapped to the face. So they start to speak to the areas of the face, and so you can touch somebody's face who's had an arm amputated, not in all cases, but in some cases they've noted that you can touch their face and say, oh, it feels like you're touching my arm that's no longer there. And that's simply due to plasticity, neurons branching out and having conversations with their neighbours. And this is actually happening in the spinal cord as well. In spinal cord injury, you can have neurons that are remaining and start to have conversations with other remaining neurons. And this can actually change the degree of functionality. It may be sensation. It may be motor. It, it, It may not change it, but there is some degree of plasticity that is occurring.
1: Yeah, and I think we know that for the first couple of years, at least, or even longer, that there are spontaneous changes that can happen yeah. in people's function. Um, so we that that has been seen.
0: Absolutely. Now, I think we should probably leave it there. We could talk about this all day, Dinesh.
1: Thank are you. you. Any-, any
0: final words? Yeah. Any final words?
1: Um, I guess a couple of other quick things that I think I need to mention is that, you know, spinal cord injury, we talked about all these different things that happen. What you see is the mobility issue outside. You see a person in a wheelchair or whatever, but things go a lot deeper than that. And we touched on some of the things that happen, but spinal cord injuries are very complex, um, situation that affects so many different things and we touched on things like autonomic dysreflexia but um, and we touched on the risks of respiratory diseases like COVID but you also get things like pressure injury skin breakdown um, which is the incident I had with the delicious pizza recently (laughs) you get more you get more it was totally worth it you get more (laughs) urinary tract infections your blood pressure is unstable you, um, and certainly in the initial stages, you're at more risk of DVTs and pulmonary emboli. Mm. So there's a whole heap of issues that happen, and that's not to mention the socioeconomic reasons.
0: Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um,
1: so it's it's a really complex um, disease, and um, I think wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whether um, you're a member of the general public, you're a non-medical person, you're a medical person, you're a person in health. Um, in addition to understanding the physiological consequences, I think it's important to realise that it's a very deep thing that affects people in so many ways.
0: Yes, you've got you've got the you've got the seen disability or the the surface disability, but there's also a lot that's happening underneath or below that surface and the unseen disability. Um, and you're right, it, it, people need to be people need to be aware, and I think education is only a good thing. And uh, w- whether it's people who have a spinal cord injury, it could be carers, it could just be anybody else. I think everybody should be aware of of some of the important points surrounding spinal cord injury. So really appreciate your perspective. It is s- such an important perspective to have the medical perspective and the individual personal life experience perspective and mesh them together. Um it, uh, absolutely invaluable and i think that this podcast episode is going to be very helpful for many people so thank you again for joining us dinesh
1: ah thanks guys always love hanging out with the both of you i know Uh,
0: i wish wish you were in this i was going to say studio but it's just matt's office, stinky office
1: close enough to a studio
0: you need to be in for the next episode you need to be sitting here with us to do Um, the next episode
1: i was i was planning to uh but um, I was waiting for a new bed to be delivered which as, which actually got delivered as we were speaking oh so nice well how's it was, that it was, it was
0: lucky was that all the noise lucky in the background was,
1: no we're very good at that <laughs> we're very, very very very, very sneaky
0: <laughs> well look thank you and hopefully next time we speak to you you've, you've either won another award or you've decided to be a plumber or something <laughs> I don't know you, you're, you're a doctor you're a lawyer you're a legend um you're a, you're a you're a what do we say a sea captain as well. So I mean,
1: yeah. Was there something else that we were talking about?
0: Was uh no. Either? I don't think there was. I don't think there was. <laughs> 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 Thank you, Dinesh.
1: All right, thanks, boys. Hold
3: up.